to uh, be jumping back in the book of Acts, so if you have your Bible, you turn to the book of Acts, we're in chapter 12. Bear with me, bear with me if, I, uh, if I wander a little bit, so I might let me know as well. And just uh, we'll see how my mind does. Of the book of Acts, we finished up nine weeks ago, I believe, or ten weeks ago now. Um, I believe in Acts chapter 12, verse 19. So we're going to jump to verse 20 this morning and look at verses 20 to the end of the chapter. So chapter uh, 12, verse 25. And in the, in the text we're studying, it, it's an interesting text for every text of interest, but it's an interesting text because it almost comes across as an aside, like this little piece of extra data, something that goes on that's totally disconnected from the rest of the book of Acts. So the book of Acts is uh, called the Acts of the Apostles, which is probably more accurately said in the past, the Acts of the Holy Spirit working in believers, apostles and others. You find in the middle here, in chapter 12, verses 20 to 25, suddenly, for one of the first times and only times in the book of, the book of Acts, the central character is an unbeliever that is somehow detached from all believers. It, it doesn't fit almost in the storyline of the text. Now I think we'll conclude it for a very important reason, and I think when we see it, it'll, it'll, it'll make sense, but there's two major points that we can recognize in this text, and both of minister to us, and uh, encourage us and exhort us. And I will tell you this, I would argue that this text is very encouraging to the believer. It is also very challenging to the believer, and even more so challenging to the non-believer. So I think it's important to hear it in its, in its, um, in its emphasis that I think Luke is trying to bring to us. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we're going to jump into the text. Lord, help us this morning as we uh, consider your scriptures, as we uh, consider this text, and consider the man Herod, and as well as the peripheral um, things around this story. I pray that you will give us wisdom and insight. Help us to understand what your word really says, and I pray that you will draw us close to you, and that your spirit will be at work in our lives, reminding you, reminding us of the truth, and reminding us of um, how great and how good and how merciful it is. So help us, Lord, work in our lives in your name, I pray. Amen. So let's read the text, and then we'll work our way through it. I, I know I've said this many hundreds of times before, uh, that I'll be short, but I believe this time I actually will, because I really want to be. <laughs> We'll see how it goes. Um, but starting in verse 20, uh, Luke records this. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem. And when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Well, we're really not going to get into verse 25 at all today. I'm ready to go to the text. But um, 
actually what I really want to look at is verses 20-24 this morning primarily. We are introduced here to Herod for the second time in recent weeks. Well, if we would have been continuing in the book of Acts. Uh, Herod was mentioned in the previous uh, the previous part of this chapter where Herod uh, took Peter and put him in captivity, right? He threw him in jail with the plan of, of killing him the next day. Of course, we know the storyline. We saw it last time we were together. Uh, Peter was released by the angel and he escaped. Herod was not happy with that. And so Herod uh, interviewed, he would use the word interviewed, probably tortured the guards to find out information where, where Peter may be and how he got away. When he got no satisfaction from that, the soldiers were killed, the guards were killed. And uh, then he went on a rampage looking for Peter, could not find the text tells us. Um, and you'll notice in the previous text, it says, and after Herod searched for him, verse 19, searched for him, Peter, and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered, ordered them that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. That last part of verse 19 is referring to Herod, I would argue, going down to Caesarea. That was one of his places where he, in fact, the primary place where Herod ruled was uh, Caesarea. By the way, there's two Caesareas. In Israel at this time, there's Caesarea Philippi and Caesarea by the sea. And this is Caesarea by the sea, is by the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, Caesarea Philippi was inland. But Caesarea, uh, Caesarea uh, by the sea was a coastal town, and it was basically the uh, capital of uh, the Roman Empire in that area, area. And here, of course, that was where he, his throne was, that's where he ruled from. Um, he was up north at uh, the point in time when he was dealing with Peter, but now he's gone back down to Caesarea, his home location basically, Caesarea by the sea. So we find verse 20, Herod, for some reason, you'll observe here in verse 20, now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon are north of Caesarea by the sea. They're probably probably like 40 or 50 miles north of Caesarea by the sea. And uh, we don't know specifically why Herod is upset with Tyre and Sidon, the text doesn't tell us. There is a possibility that, that he's upset with them because perhaps um, they, he had, he Herod, the simple reality is that he's really angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And the reason, and, and his, the way he's going to express his anger to them is he's cutting off their food. So they can't have grain, they can't have food, because they, they were uh, two towns that imported food from the rest of Herod's authority area. And so because he was angry with them, he's cutting off their food, the people of, of Tyre and Sidon come to him with one accord, and having, they say, it says here, Luke records that having persuaded Blastus, who is the king's chamberlain, a, a, a highly trusted servant of, of Herod, they, they persuaded Blastus to try to get Herod to sit down with them, basically is the idea. Herod decides to do so, and of course the people of Tyre and Sidon are asking for peace, they want their food that they can import from Herod's people. Uh, so we come to verse 21, Herod agrees to meet with them, and in verse 21 it says, On an appointed day, Herod put out his royal robes, 
took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. It's an interesting... right away. He set it up so that it would be the best of days for him to meet with them. This was a day that was a big celebration day for the Roman uh, Empire. In any case, in verse 21, on the appointed day, it says, Herod put on his royal robes. And this is just a historical fact. It's kind of interesting. Herod's royal robes were made out of silver. They actually were spun silver. And so, if you could picture this, and, and, and one other thing we need to understand, when it says he went to his throne, his throne was not like you would think of a throne. Most times when you think about a throne, you think about it would be in a, a room or a castle or something like that, right? Some sort of building. No. For Herod, he had his throne on a platform in the middle of an open amphitheater that would seat thousands of people. The ruins are still there to this day. But, so he would sit on, the, on, the, on his throne in an open amphitheater. So you can picture it. The sun shining, the, the crowds who are terrified that they can't get any food, and they desperately want Herod to, what? Forgive them for whatever and embrace them and provide food for them. So they gathered, and then after they all gathered, thousands of people from, from Tyre and Sidon in walks Herod. Well, not in, into the amphitheater. Again, the sun is shining. I mean, can you imagine how blinding it must have been when Herod walks in? Overwhelmingly blinding as he walks into the sunlight and sits down. And it's interesting, again, in verse 21, on an appointed day, Herod put on his row robes, took his seat upon the throne, and it says in my ESV, it says, and delivered an oration to him, to them. Maybe I have a text that says something different than oration. Um, delivered a public address. A public address. Probably a better way to understand it is a diatribe. He railed on them. The, the, the words chosen is the picture of someone who's getting up and stern, sternly aggressively attacking and rebuking and putting down the people that are speaking to him. That's what Herod's doing. Just to give you the full picture. Verse 22. As Herod's speaking, the people begin to what? They begin to shout. And the people who are shouting are saying, it's pretty much everybody in the crowd, the voice of a god and not of a man. What are they doing? Flattery. Flattery, yes. What else are they doing? It's worship. Isn't it? It's worship. They're crying out with regard to Hebrew. With regard to Herod, they're crying out that this man who is before us in all his shining apparel he is speaking as if he is a God. He is using the words of a God and not of a man. Now, 22, the, the gap between 22 and 23 is dramatic. Because he's speaking, they're shouting, thousands of people shouting. He is a God. The appropriate thing for him to have done is to do what? 
say, no, I'm not, right? And it's interesting, in the Roman era, that's exactly what the Roman rulers would have done. Interestingly enough, they would have said, no, that's not appropriate. And not. Because the, the Romans did believe in rule of law, not, not rule of person. But Herod, quite the contrary, doesn't review. He doesn't stop it. He revels in it. There's an absolute contrast between Herod and Peter and Paul, who over and over and over again refuse to let people bow down and worship them. Herod, no, not same guy, but Herod absolutely is evidently reveling in this adulation. Verse 23. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. He was eaten by worms and breathed at last. Wow. According to the historical record, it actually took Herod five days to die. He immediately finished speaking. He immediately stopped speaking, according to the historical record. He was done. He actually immediately fell. When they started yelling, he is a god, they fell, or he fell to the ground in front of his throne. And was taken away. And five days later, he died an absolutely agonizing death because the worms were eating him. And, they, and they, he alone, he, he's not the only one who ever had that happen. There are other people, both in biblical record as well as in extra biblical record, that this type of thing happened to. It wasn't common, but it did happen. And it was uh, especially a historic, uh, horrific way to die. Be this may, the text tells us that immediately the angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. He beat my words raised his laugh. Um, the, the, the thing that's interesting about verse 23 is the point, because he did not give God the glory. Now it's easy to read the text and say, well, wait a second, Steve, he wasn't a believer. So of course he's not going to give God the glory, correct? Is that right? Of course he's not going to give God the glory. Because he's not a believer. Which brings us to the first point that we should drag out of this text, that importantly drag out of this text. We need to understand, when we read this text, we need to understand something. There is no one who is lost who gives God the glory. Does that make sense so far? People who are lost do not give God the glory. Correct? They glory in everything else but, either themselves or other things, and they do not give God glory. So what do we what do we see in this text immediately? That is this. We have to recognize the mercy of God. When I was reading this text this week, one of the things that I was reminded of was um I'm right now the name. The message was the sinner in the hands of the angry God. Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, thank you very much. Um, Jonathan Edwards Preach the message, sinners in the hand of an angry God. And in
He describes something in graphic detail. He describes what sinners, lost sinners, are hanging over the hell of the abyss of hell by a measly spider thread. The only thing holding them there is the hand of God's mercy. In a moment, it can all change. In an absolute moment. The presumption is striking as people naturally rage against holy God. And that's exactly what we see here is in this storyline, what happened in a moment's notice. God let go of the bread. Didn't he? He let go of the bread. And when he let go of the bread, the story tells us what happened. In his case, it took him five days to get to hell, but the journey there was the real thing. The moment God let go, removed his mercy from the words of you began to eat him and the experience of horrific death, which was nothing compared to what he experienced after he died. It's the mercy of God. Just a thought, perhaps, just perhaps, our view of the lost people that we know needs to be changed. Our thinking, what I mean is, our thinking with regard to the lost people we know was changed. You see, what, what Luke is describing is, in the storyline, is this very thing. He's saying, here's a true and accurate view of God. Not Herod so much, but God. At this point in time, Herod's functioning like a normal person, isn't he? He's living life, he's ruling, he's traveling, he's making decisions, he's acting on his decisions, he's doing the stuff of life. In the moment, God removes his hand of mercy upon him. What happens? Everything goes around. Protestant. I wonder what it would be like if we began to think about this. Our unsaved friends and loved ones, neighbors and relatives, we began to think about them the way John Edwards described. They're dangling by a thread. In one moment, everything could change because just like Herod, the next our neighbor, Co-workers, relatives, friends are refusing to be born again. Aren't they? Aren't they? They're absolutely refusing. Now, it's really easy to say, well, they just don't know God. No, they're refusing. That's what that's what the scriptures tell us, doesn't it? They're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. That's the issue with the unsaved. Always has been.
does bread. And there's no guarantee that he will not. That's why he says today is the day of salvation. No sense? I just wonder how our view of our neighbors and friends and relatives and everybody else that we need, you know, say, I wonder how it would change when we started thinking about them in light of that spread. Just a great spread. Immediately, the angel of the Lord struck the ground. And then we have this contrast. And it's a pretty impressive contrast. Because in verse 23, 22-23, actually 21-23, you have, or 21-22, we have this story of Herod speaking, the people saying it's the words of God, of a God, not of a man. Herod doesn't stop all that. In verse 24, it's interesting on several levels, isn't it? But the word of God increased and multiplied. The interesting contrast, because if you think about it, you have the people of Tyre and Sidon saying, What about Herod's words? They're the words of a God, right? They're the words of a God. And interestingly enough, Verse 24, the word of God increased and multiplied. And it's interesting that Luke records the first statement as with the uh, uh, indirect object, a God. In verse 24, the word of God. It's an absolute contrast in verse 22, 24, an absolute contrast. Herod's words, God's word. What happens to Herod's word? Nothing. What's the power of Herod's word? Nothing. What weight does it carry? Nothing. What does it change? Nothing. How does it last? It doesn't. God increased and multiplied. Now expand expand the text out further because what's, what else is going on during this time? Peter's been thrown in prison, James has been killed, persecution's going everywhere, the Christians for the most part have been driven out of Jerusalem, and they've been driven north for the most part, up to Antioch and beyond. But the word of God increased and multiplied. When it says that, it doesn't mean there, there became more words of God. They're talking about it increasing as it's having its effect. Unlike Herod's word that the people are saying is like the words of a God and having no effect, the word of God is spreading and is having an eternal effect. That's the word of God you have. That's the word of God I have. That's the word of God we're studying. Because God is on the march, his words are on the march. 
what's, what's the point that we can drag out? There are several points we can drag out of that statement when we compare and contrast 22 and 24. And that is this. I'm going to wrap up pretty quickly here, but can I ask you a question? What do we have to fear? I just want to think about this. What do we have to fear? Okay, why did I bring that? Because we, what? We fear. What do we have to fear? I don't care how amazing the words of the person is you're talking to, or the words are you're talking to. Are they the words of a God? No. Are they even close? Are they going to, as the text says in verse 24, are they going to increase and multiply? No. You know why? Because the God of the word is the, is the one holding the very life of the He absolutely is. But the word of God is increasing and spreading. I mean, think it through. Seriously, I mean, we, we ought to think it through. This is the point of the text. What do we fear? When we fear man, are we not fearing what they'll do or what they'll say, primarily? Isn't that what we're fearing? What they'll do and what they say. And mostly it's what they say, because they don't do anything to us, right? Mostly it's what they'll say. When we fear what they say, can I just ask you a quick question? This is the exhortation. When we fear what someone says to us, are we not without saying it, the words of a God? Aren't we? Isn't that exactly what we're saying? Exactly. And in fact, if I fear the person, and therefore I don't bring the word of God, am I not in reality saying that they're more worthy of being feared than God is to be feared? And if I'm saying that, am I not saying they are And the whole time, what are we doing? If we're doing that, we're denying who really holds the right? Aren't we? The encouraging part about the text, if I can present the super encouraging part of the text, or thought of the text, it is several fold, but that's how to encourage us. In the midst of all that persecution, the word of God is what again? Increasing and multiplying. If it's increasing and multiplying under severe persecution, yet think it could be more than what done. Think about it. Do you think the word of God could possibly be more than there's none? Do you think a God is powerful enough to, to cause the word of God to spread in the midst of serious persecution? 
make it powerful enough to outspread during times of no persecution. And like the whole text, a word of encouragement, because what we're really talking about here is what? We're not talking primarily about our task or our job or what we ought to be doing. We're talking about the God who did this. Correct? We're talking about the God who, who said, no. Herod, you will not continue with this. Is that what we're dealing with right here? Herod, you will not continue playing my role. Your puny throne does not give you the right to receive adulation belonging only to me. And so we see God doing what? Immediately removing him from his throne. Is that what God does? He immediately removes him from his throne. That's the God we serve. A God that's more powerful than Herod. More powerful, he goes throughout the rest of the scripture, more powerful than famine, more powerful than conflict, more powerful than oppression, more powerful than, than uh, hatred, more powerful than, than, um, uh, And he's the God that loves me. He's the God who has ordained and we're be saved. He's the God who rescued us from life, from death to life. He's the God who grafted us into the world. He is the God who has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. The God who just as easily could he have let go of us, right? Could he have? At any moment? Because we're no better than Eric, were we? We're no better. We're the same. What we think for you and I is we take us in this Gives the word. The word of God. And he gives the word of God to have the protection of lives. It is an exhortation. This is how God views the events of our lives, of our world. It is also a word of encouragement. This is a God who loves us. And he control. And he's on the throne. And he's merciful. He's also just. He is worthy of praise and worship. Amen? Amen. I'm going to close with that. Let's go work there. Lord, help us. We we don't often find ourselves thinking about the, the, the people
people we know that are lost in those type of categories. We certainly don't even think about you in those categories in regard to ourselves. Lord, I pray that you will change our hearts so that we will realize who you are and how merciful you've been to us. You brought us here today to worship. That's by your mercy. You brought us here to revel in you, enjoy you, and to know that you love us. And yet, we also know that there are many people who are hanging by a thread. And I try to do that for every moment. And they can plunge into the horrors of mercy. And so, Lord, we ask that you will change our hearts with regard to thinking about you. And that you will change our hearts as we think about those we know. So, Lord, I pray that it will be said of our world, of our spirit, and by your spirit, that the word of God will be used for